Well, this morning I want to start with this question. What are your priorities? If you were to take the top five, and I've listed some of these, and maybe you have a priority that's not on here, I'm sure we could find individuals that their top priority is some, you know, random thing, and there's everything under the sun, I suppose. But if we were to say, for some, they might say, well, number one priority is me. It's my life. It's my health. It's my livelihood. And maybe second on the list, well, my work and what I do for a living. This is, is so important. This is who I am. Of course, relationships aren't far behind those ones that are closest to me, my family. I might let God come in there around number four. And if there's time, I might do a little bit for the church or mission. And that might be somebody's priority list. Whether it's known and on paper or if it's just lived out, that could be their list. Others like to say things to just get out of the list altogether. They say things like, well, for me, everything's a priority. Wrong. It's not possible. If everything's a priority, then nothing is a priority. So back to the list. Some might say, you know, my life is important, but relationships are very important. And my work is behind that. My family comes first. And then I go to work and I do that whole thing and then I try and, I, you know, I try and be a good person and I try and live for God and, and I try and help out in my church when I can. Others might say, well, life and relationships and then, then it's God. I even put God before my work and that would be good. And then if there's time, maybe the church or mission or something of that nature. But what should the list be? You can argue with me if you want. I think number one should be God. I believe he deserves to be at the top of every list. Secondly, I would say relationships and family. And you say, oh, hold on. You're a pastor. It's supposed to be the church. I've known way too many pastors that church is number two and family is three. And I don't like to hang out with their family. Do you? They're dysfunctional. Their kids are a mess. In fact, they even have a term, PK kid. What is that? pastor's kid well k is kid and i said it twice okay they're pks pastor's kid meaning they need a little more dad in their life so i would say god first relationships and family i think it's a biblical idea as for me and my house get your house in order and when we do that we can better serve the church and be part of mission I think our life and our health is certainly important. And you say, well, what about work? Well, if I'm not healthy, how well can I work? And so I'd propose that that's perhaps a better list of the priorities. But the real uncomfortable truth is, on any given day, this list might get scrambled. I don't want it to get scrambled, and neither do you. But some days, it just gets scrambled. Who's first in your life? Well, God's first. Then why are you doing this over here? Who's second? Well, my family is so important. They're priority. Then how come? You see what I'm saying? It's not an intentional switch. We're not trying to rearrange the list. It's just life can happen. Like Billy just said, too often our 
more natural tendency is to rearrange the list. And in so doing, there can be problems. We're going through a series I'm calling The Days of Elijah. I believe we're living in the days of Elijah. And in part three, we're looking at this idea, willing to give up everything. It's a lot easier said than done to give up everything and to have God truly be at the top of the list. But today I want to look at this piece of the story. We're still in 1 Kings chapter 17 where we have an example of that. And as we go through in chapter 17, and I'll open my Bible there as well, quick review, and I think most of us know the story of Elijah pretty well. But first it starts out just straight out of the gate with a bold message that Elijah has from the Lord. Because Elijah is jealous for the glory of God. That was the first piece in this series. And he says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I serve or stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. It starts with a bold message. Then last week we saw almost immediately there begins this season of isolation for Elijah. As Elijah stayed alone by the brook Cherish, For many months, trusting in the provision and timing of the Lord. Here is the patience of the saints, if you will, as he waits and waits and waits. And then finally, at the end of that message last week, he gets the call to go. As the brook dries up, God has not forgotten about his prophet about his servant about his man and he says Elijah it's time to go to which they probably was relieved to hear and he says okay where are we going and so that's where I want to pick up our story we're in first Kings chapter 17 and we'll begin this morning in verse 8 says then the word of the Lord came to him Elijah saying arise go to Seraphath which belongs to Sidon and dwell there See, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. So it says he arose and went to Zarephath. Now, where is Zarephath, you may be asking? Well, Cherith is more over on the other side of the Jordan. He had to travel some 80 to 100 miles back going west towards the Mediterranean Sea to this town. Now, that would be quite a feat I don't know if a feat, I'm not trying to make a joke because he was walking, but it would be a big deal even now to go 80 or 100 miles on foot. That would be pretty close to going to Charlotte, depending on where you're going to Charlotte and where you're starting here. It's about 80 to 100 miles. So it's kind of a big deal to walk to Charlotte. How are we going to get there? We're going to have to depend on people from time to time. We're going to have to look for resources. Oh, but that's the other thing. We're in a time of drought. And so it's going to be extra challenging. But there's a few things on top even still. Elijah is, well, he's a wanted man. All over are pictures of Elijah, if you will, with the words wanted and perhaps even a reward posted underneath. So now I have to go this long distance wondering the whole time, who can I trust? 
Who can I show my face to? How much of the time do I just need to keep my head down and keep going? And where will my provisions come from? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. It just says that he arose and he went. Almost 100 miles walking. He has some time to think. Zarephath. I wonder why Zarephath. And I wonder why a widow in Zarephath. Zarephath happened to be where Jezebel's father ruled over the territory. It was heathen territory, to be sure. And a widow. Widows typically don't strike us as having an abundance of resources. It's not easy to be a widow. That's why God says we are to forever look after the orphans and the widows. So, Elijah, I'm going to send you to heathen territory to a widow. I mean, if I was a servant of God, if I just gave a bold message, if he'd been providing for me and I had to walk a hundred miles to my next location, I'd feel a whole lot better if if the Lord were to say, there is a a nice, well-off Adventist family in Charlotte. They have well over 50 acres. You will be safe here. Okay. I will go. But that's not what the word of the Lord said. I'm going to send you to a widow in the inner city. This is interesting. This seems perhaps a little backwards. Add to that, Elijah, you're not necessarily going to help her, which he will, but the word comes, she's going to help you. And then as I'm walking, I'm thinking, why not an Israelite? Why not a believer? Prophets and Kings 129 tells us this. This woman was not an Israelite. She had never had the privileges and blessings that the chosen people of God had enjoyed. But she was a believer in the true God and had walked in all the light that was shining on her pathway. You might be scratching your your head and say, how could this woman possibly be a believer? Well, again, I don't know. The scripture verses don't exactly tell me. But we can certainly tell by this story and what Jesus later says about her that she's a great woman of faith. And so the fact that she is what she is is there. How she got there, we're left to wonder. Some have guessed that Zarephath was in the kingdom of Tyre, and the king of Tyre is mentioned several times in the Bible. In fact, Scripture says both David and Solomon both conversed with the king of Tyre. In fact, the king of Tyre helped David to build his house, and Solomon went to the king of Tyre as well for materials to build the temple. The cedars of Lebanon, if you will were contracted through the king of Tyre. And so some have suggested that the people in that region would have seen and known of Israel. They would have seen the prosperity of Israel and the kings of Israel, how God blessed Israel. But now a hundred years past Solomon, maybe they've observed how they have wandered from this God that they call the true God. And maybe there were some people in the outskirts that were paying close attention. Maybe this widow was one of them. 
and then she's living up to the light that she has understood and come to know. God looks at this time in history across the landscape and says, she's my girl. I'm going to send you here. But here's the saddest part. Luke 4, 25 and 26 says this, but I tell you, truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to where? Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And so what is Jesus saying? He's saying there are many widows in Israel, but God passed by them all and rather chose this widow of Zarephath in the heathen region of Sidon. Or maybe it's more accurate to say it another way. He didn't truly pass them by, meaning the other Israel widows, but rather they rejected the message, didn't they? They rejected God's prophet, and so he sent the prophet elsewhere. That hurts, does it not? Here the people of God are no longer wanting to be recipients of what God has to say. Testimonies, Volume 3, fleshes this out, page 274. A heathen woman living up to the best light she had was in a more acceptable state with God than the widows of Israel, who had been blessed with special privileges and great light and yet did not live according to the light which God had given them. So God didn't really pass by them as much as they just passed by God and said, not interested. Came to them first, but they didn't embrace it. They didn't accept it. And they were given great light, but they ignored it. Have mercy. Could that ever be said of us? Here God has bestowed great light on the Seventh-day Adventist church, but sadly, too often we're content with just a little light that we have. I don't need great light. That would be overwhelming. That would be too much. I might be perceived as fanatical or as legalistic or a holy roller. No, a little light is just right for me. Not too much, not too little, just right. Isn't there a story about that, the three bears? Bed was too hard, one was too soft, one was just right. I don't know if that exactly fits. But here we've been given great light. But sometimes we just reject it. We don't want it. We don't want to have to do what it requires us to do. So we'll just take a little bit. We'll just take a sliver. We'll just take a piece. No, just a little light works for me just now. Church in the morning, going out to eat with friends in the afternoon. And I won't be an alcoholic, but I believe a little wine is okay. I like the day off work, but let's be clear, the Sabbath is about me and what I want to do. It's not so much a holy day, it's a holiday. And Ellen White, well, she's good devotional reading, but she really was for her time and has very little relevance for me today. Friends, we have been blessed with special privileges and great light. 
What are we doing with it? Are we living up to all the light God has given? Or like the widows in Israel, are we bowing the knee to Baal? I mean, we still pray to God, but are we living a double life? Because if truth be known, we're still tangled up in the ways of the world. The entertainments of the world, the dress, the adornment, the lifestyle of the world. But I better continue. So here in a foreign land, there is a woman, a believer, who has taken notice of the true God. She's living up to the light she's received. And here's where the story, to me, really gets incredible. And so I hope you still have your Bibles open. We're in verse 10 now. And it says, So he, Elijah, arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed, a widow was there gathering sticks. I imagine his feet are tired. I imagine he's hungry. He's come a long way. I don't know how many days he's been on the trail. And he says, And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, <laughs> I don't have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, a little oil in a jar, and see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. To which we expect Elijah to backpedal. I'm so sorry. I had no idea. I never would have asked or even thought to ask if I even had a clue that that was your situation. I'm so sorry. How can I help? My version says something different, similar but different. Verse 13, and Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first. And bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. I mean, this is like straight out of, you know, cable TV evangelists. Give to me first, and all these things will be added unto you. Write the check out too. And if you do that, blessings from God will be poured out upon you. Just write the check. The number's flashing on your screen. Give now. And I wonder what the widow is thinking at this moment. Make something for me first. I can tell he's an Israelite. And by how he's dressed, he has the appearance of a prophet of God. And this is a bold statement he's making. But he's not done. Verse 14. For thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now she's listening very closely. The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. Here this widow has a big choice to make. He's making great promises in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. He looks the part. What will she do? How will she respond? I mean, he's asking an awful lot, isn't he? 
Do not fear, go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first. Let me ask you, when we give to God, do we first make sure that our needs are met? And then see what's left over for God? What does God's word say? Bring me the second fruits. Is that what it says? Does God have first place in your life? Seek ye second the kingdom of God. Is that how it reads? No. In fact, leave your finger there. We're going to come back to this story. But let's go to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, his own words. And I have Matthew 6, 33, but I want to back up a few more verses and get the context of this verse we know so well. Matthew 6, verse 25 says, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? Verse 28, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so closes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But here's the clincher. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. I think of Solomon. What would you desire, Solomon? He could have asked for any number of things. But he says, Lord, I don't know how to, to rule over your people. I'm just a kid. I don't know how to go in, how to come out. Lord, I need wisdom to rule your people in a way that glorifies you. And God gives him wisdom. Seek ye first. And all these things, and all these things were granted unto Solomon. I mean, this verse is challenging, no question. It's powerful. I think it's also practical. What's this widow going to do? I like a few of these quotations. This one's from Conflict and Courage, page 370. This promise, referring to Matthew 6, 33, seek ye first, this promise will never fail. Did you read that? Put a little note in your Bible in case you read it on a day that you have some doubts. It says this promise will never fail. By so doing, there will come to us that peace, contentment, and wisdom that the world can neither give nor take away. Here's another one, Acts of the Apostles, 467. Difficulties. Anybody have difficulties? How was your week this week? Difficult. It was hard. It was challenging. Difficulties, she writes, will be powerless to hinder him who is determined to seek 
first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If you want your difficulties to be powerless, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these difficulties, they'll work out. Here's another one, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 99. If you give yourself to God's service, he who has all power in heaven and earth will provide for your needs. Somehow we think that my power and my ability to figure this thing out, and I'm going to put some things on paper, I'm going to have plan A, B, C, D, I'm going to think of all the contingencies, and we think that the power lies in my little cheap booklet that I have made, and Jesus just says, Dave... No, you've forgotten. I'm the all-powerful one. I'm the all-wise one. I'm the one that has all the resources. I have cattle on a thousand hills. If you give yourself, David, to God's service, he who has all power in heaven and earth will provide for your needs. Yes, God, but do you know? I know. Do you realize I do? Trust me. Seek first. Me and my kingdom and my righteousness. And I'll take care of those things. Prophets and Kings also says this, no greater test of faith than this could have been required. Those are tall words. No greater test of faith. Think about that. She's a widow How did she become a widow? What has she endured since then? Alone. And she has a son, and she's seeking to provide for that son. Have you ever held a dying little boy, mouthing the words, I'm hungry? I have. And it's heart-wrenching. As our little son James, in his final Days of life, would he like to put his hand up to his mouth as if he was going to yell something loud. But he couldn't really speak much anymore, but he could barely talk, and with a whisper he could say, I'm hungry. He couldn't take anything then. That time had passed. But as a parent, you want to do something. You want to feed your child. And so this mother is doing everything that she knows to do and here this guy, this stranger of a guy comes into town with this message, do what you've talked about but feed me first. And then some promise according to the word of the Lord That your bin of flour will not be used up, nor the jar of oil shall run dry. This is a big ask. On the part of the prophet, on the part of God. Yet instead of sustaining her life, granted for probably not much longer, and that of her little boy, in this greatest test of faith, she makes a decision. Another quote here, Prophets and Kings 130, the coming of Elijah on the very day when the widow feared that she must give up the struggles to sustain life, tested to the uttermost her faith and the power of the living God to provide for her necessities. Have you been tested to the uttermost? 
But even in her dire extremity, she bore witness to her faith. Luke 14, 26 is another hard verse. Again, on the lips of Jesus, it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Friends, hate is a strong word. We don't use that in our house. It comes from messio, which means to strongly dislike, have an aversion towards someone or something that usually results in a separation. And in this case, what is the separation? It's choosing God over your closest human ties on earth. An attitude of hatred toward our family is not, I believe, what Jesus is asking of us, but rather putting of God first, which brings about risks of the accusation of hating one's family. Because someone's not going to understand. Someone's going to say, you're not taking care of yourself, you're not taking care of your child, what are you doing? But Jesus says, if anyone comes to me, I have to come first, even first before the most precious relationships. And in our humanness, we can say that's backwards, that's warped, that's messed up. But God says, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto, will be blessed, will be multiplied. And it's one thing to say it. God's first in my life. It's quite another thing to live it, isn't it? Does anybody else have that challenge here besides me? Verse 15, back to our story in 1 Kings chapter 17. It says, so she, the widow, went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she... And he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. I read those verses, I say, good for her. Good for her. And I read that and I say, Lord, give me a simple faith in your word and in your prophets. You read it, it's both there. She did according to the word of Elijah, the prophet. She did according to the word of the Lord in the next verse, verse 16. She's living up to each of those. And I say, Lord, give me a simple faith in your word and in your prophets. And she acted in simple, childlike faith. And when I say simple, I don't mean easy. I mean simple that she didn't try to overanalyze it. She had sufficient evidence, if you will, but not all of her questions could possibly have been answered. But she acted. She decided to go and to do according to the word of the Lord spoken through the prophet Elijah. That's what she did. And then God blessed and then the next day, he blessed, and he blessed, and he blessed. 
I'd like to see the video of how this worked. Was it just continually almost empty, but just there's a little bit more, enough for one more, enough for one more, enough for one more? I mean, this is phenomenal every day. There's just enough for one more. Maybe there's people here that could give testimony to that. They say, that is me every single month. I see the bills that come in. I know what I have coming in, and they don't match. But somehow at the end, there's just enough. There's just enough. There's just enough. And I might say, what's your secret? And they say, I learned a long time ago to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. I give my tithes. I give my offerings. And I don't know how it happens, but it comes together. And perhaps the saddest reality of this story is that this was supposed to be the reality of the entire nation of Israel. If they too would simply heed the word of the Lord spoken through his prophets. But instead, this Gentile woman and her family enjoy God-given blessings while God's people are starving. That's a sad reality. One heeded the word of the Lord spoken through his prophets. The other did not, would not, and suffered as a result. Have you ever suffered as a result? I have. What if I had sought the Lord first in that case? And in this situation, and in this opportunity, oh Lord, give me a simple faith in your word and your prophets. Friends, has anything changed? Back to this verse where Jesus says in Luke 4, 25 and 26, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Jesus said these words about a thousand years after the story took place. So a thousand years later, Jesus mentions this widow And it's early on in his ministry. Jesus was just tempted in the wilderness. He has returned to Nazareth where he's been brought up. He goes into the temple. He pulls out the Old Testament scrolls. He claims to be the Messiah in the verses that he reads. And then he says this. And as a result, all those who were in the synagogue, it says, were filled with wrath. And what did they do? Well, they took him to the cliff to kill him. But he slipped away. A thousand years later, nothing had changed. They were not willing to heed the word of the Lord. They had rejected his prophets. And again, 2,000 years later, has anything changed? Second Chronicles 2020. Thank you, Michael, for reading this. says, hear me, O Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. He's speaking to his own people. He says, believe in the Lord your God, and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. Oh, Lord, give me a simple faith in your word and in your prophets. But in the days of Elijah, they were worshiping God on their own terms. They're rejecting the voice of his prophets, and not even an overwhelming drought would wake them up. Has anything changed? In 2021, people still want to worship God on their own terms. They're still rejecting the voice of his prophets, and not even a worldwide pandemic can wake them up. Ahab, largely led by Jezebel, refused to see the famine as judgment of Jehovah. And they were unyielding and searching out and destroying the prophets of God. They thought that was the problem. Never mind the word the prophets brought. No, it's the prophets. They're the problem. 
And if they could just put God's prophets out of the way, they felt they could stay the problems of the land. And so there's this diligent search, this manhunt that we find out later, but it's there even now in this story. There's this manhunt for Elijah and for the true prophets of God. And he's even making other kings around make oaths. If you see Elijah, if you see our prophets, let us know because we are taking them out. Thinking they can appease Baal and their false god. And sadly, they see that the prophet of God is a curse rather than a blessing. When why does God always send his prophets? To curse his people. Is that what it is? Ezekiel 18, 23. Do I have any pleasure that all the wicked should die, says the Lord God, and not that he should turn from his ways and live? He's the God of life. He created from the dust of the ground and breathed life. I don't take any pleasure that any should die. Verse 31, the same chapter. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? Again, talking to his people. For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. And then in chapter 33, verse 11, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? That's the point of the prophets. You're going the wrong direction, and I can't sit here in good conscience and let you go. You need to turn back. There's a way that you think is right unto a man, but it leads to destruction. And so I'm going to send a prophet so you won't be destroyed. And so the famine was to be a wake-up call for God's people. And Jesus did the same to the Pharisees and the scribes and the church leaders, Matthew 23. I challenge you to go home today and read that. And don't ask how, oh, this is the church and they're all so terrible. And No, ask, how is this me? If you're honest with yourself, you'll find yourself there. What's Matthew 23? It's where Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the scribes and the church leaders, and he gives them woe after woe after woe. And he calls them blind guides and hypocrites, full of lawlessness, sons of hell, brood of vipers. And is he just trying to blast them? He's not. Harshest words we have on the lips of Jesus, but his whole intent is to get their attention. There's some kids in the classroom, you just look at them and you make an eyebrow and they're gonna cry. But there's some kids in the classroom, that teacher is praying, Lord, how do I get through to these hardened, callous kids on the back row? And at the end of the strongest rebukes we have on the lips of Jesus, to wake them up, Desire of Ages says he's weeping as he says these last words. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I've wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. Oh, Lord, give me a simple faith for your word and your prophets. Sadly, less than one generation after Jesus said these words, there were more Gentile Christians than Jewish Christians. 
Not that we make that distinction necessarily, but I think you understand the point. God's people had rejected, by and large, and the Gentiles had accepted. And what a sad pattern. As over and over we see the people of God rejecting truth, rejecting God's prophets, rejecting those sent to save and help them. Oh Lord, give me a simple faith in your word and your prophets. Prophets and Kings 127 and 128 says God had sent messengers to Israel with appeals to return to their allegiance. Had they heeded these appeals, had they turned from Baal to the living God, Elijah's message of judgment would never have been given. It wouldn't have been needed. Their pride, Israel's pride, had been wounded. Their anger had been aroused against the messengers. And now they regarded with intense hatred the prophet Elijah. If only he should fall into their hands, gladly they would deliver him to Jezebel. As if, by silencing his voice, talking about Elijah, the prophet now, as if by silencing his voice, they could stay the fulfillment of his words. Friends, truth is truth. And you can kill the prophet, you can destroy the prophet, you can throw the prophet under the bus, you can make a website, you can write a book, but the truth will still stand. We just sang about it this morning. He is exalted and forever exalted. His truth forever shall stand, shall remain. Don't think just because you can get rid of the prophet, stop believing in the prophet, do away with the prophet, that the truth is no longer truth. You haven't done anything to the truth or the message. It's still there. You've just chosen to reject it, to deny it. They tried to silence the voice of Elijah. They tried to silence the voice of Jesus. They tried to silence the voice of Stephen and Paul and endless others. They tried to silence the gift of prophecy today. As if by getting rid of the messenger, they could hold back the fulfillment of their words. One prominent theologian today, spoken at our camp meeting here in Carolina many times. Within the last year, he's been teaching that, and he's teaching one of our institutions, sadly. He's been teaching that Ellen White is just a classical prophet. Hopefully you haven't heard this, but maybe you have. She's just a classical prophet and not an apocalyptic prophet, meaning she does not have a message for us regarding the end of the world. And that her identification of various beasts and the Sunday law, those are all conditional prophecies. And we saw a period in her today when those came close to being fulfilled. They were conditional. So it's naive of us to think we need to keep looking for Sunday laws. Sunday persecution will never arise that At the end, Rome will no longer have an important part in all of this. And so the church and our end time scenario is from Ellen White and not the Bible. And we need to just let her be a classical prophet. Let her be history. Let her be back there where she belongs. Have mercy. Friends, it boggles my mind that these claims can be made. They're being made in public forums. You can pull them up on YouTube even now, just in this last year. We just went through final events, a series in this church, and yes, we looked at Spirit of Prophecy, but the foundation of each message I appeal to you was from the Bible. Friends, Rome is seen as a key player in Daniel 2 as the iron legs and the iron mixed with clay until when? Until the stone that is cut out without hands destroys the earth, and that is the coming of Jesus Christ to establish his kingdom. 
We see Rome in Daniel chapter 7 as the fourth beast with this little horn and ten of identifying marks that this is the papacy, all from Scripture. This is Rome, which again remains until God establishes his eternal kingdom. We see it fleshed out more fully in Daniel chapter 11. We see the same imagery in Daniel 7 as we see in Revelation 13. And who is the same beast behind the infamous and apocalyptic, if you will, mark of the beast spoken of in Revelation 16. I mean, it's all throughout Scripture. And when we give our evangelistic efforts and our our prophecy seminars, it's not all Ellen White stuff. It's from the Bible, from the Bible, from the Bible, from the Bible. And so somebody says, well, then why do we need her anyway? Because she, too, is biblical. It's there. God's final people will keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 12, you compare that with Revelation 19. What is the testimony of Jesus Christ? The gift of prophecy. So if you throw her out, you're not being biblical. Or I guess you're just waiting for something else to come along and Jesus isn't coming because we're still waiting. Our whole identity just gets lost in this ambiguous thing. It's not Rome. We're looking for another key figure. We can't identify the beast. We should just follow the lamb. The lamb's the one that gave us the beast told us about it in advance so we would know. I'll calm down. And all this dovetails so nicely with Revelation 14, three angels' messages to worship, true worship of the creator. And the direct quotation from the fourth commandment, or worship the beast and its image and receive the mark of authority. No, scripture is very plain. Scripture is solid. And again, I don't see how you can make these huge leaps. We have another author and theologian making claims. Sorry, and this is the same author and theologian I'm thinking about here that's made the claims I already mentioned. Being a well-known theologian, having many books, having been thought of as the guru of revelation, knowing more than anyone else. And it's a very heady way that if I want to hang any doubt, I can say, oh, greater apologetics or, or greater minds or, or greater individuals that study and have been studying these their whole life, they're coming to these conclusions. Therefore, if I follow, then I too am an intellectual. And so anything I want to hang my doubt on, I can hang it on. There's another theologian that's saying, if you really want to understand the Bible, we have to bring in the Apocrypha. Because this eh, it gets a little wishy-washy. The Apocrypha helps to even things out. Really? There's another young individual. If I said his name, you would know it too. He's been to our camp meeting several times. He says, well, this story is really, they also are saying that Ellen White is wonderful, but not really stuff for us today. The Bible is really just a story that speaks of a covenant relationship and is not to be used to prove specific points of doctrine. Does that sound strange to you? Friends, absolutely the Bible is a story. It's a story of redemption. Absolutely the Bible speaks of covenants between God and his people. But to say it's not to be used to prove points of doctrine goes entirely against 2 Timothy 3.16. That all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. And if that is not the case, then why did Jesus do it time and time and time again? Quoting the Old Testament. If that's the case, how come Paul and the apostles did it? Quoting again and again and again. Told you I was going to calm down. 
And as I try and wrap my mind around it, how can these claims be made? How can these claims be bought and swallowed and believed in? The only way I can figure it out, simple little country boy from Tennessee, the only way I can figure it out is that to swallow this, it's because you're not part of the Great Commission. You're not part of evangelism. You're not studying the Bible with somebody. You're not reading the spirit of prophecy. And especially books like Last Day Events, Great Controversy, because if you read it anew, folks, I get inspired It's invigorating. I'm filled with awe for the amazing message we have been given for these last days. It's as if she wrote us an email and sent it yesterday. And I read it and I say, wow. And this story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath stands as a reminder to us that God longs to use us, to bless us, to provide for us as we seek him first. Have we just stopped seeking him? And in simple faith, believe God's word and his prophets. This humble woman or widow had an understanding of the truth. And while she wasn't an Israelite, she was a believer. She was living up to the light she had, what she knew to be truth, and she acted in simple faith on that truth. And she was willing to put her life, the life of her son, on the line. All for what? God's word and the word of his prophets. She didn't balk. She didn't argue. She didn't scoff. But rather with humility and simple faith, she acted on the word of the Lord. Do not fear, says Elijah. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterwards, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day of the Lord, until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went. And did, according to the word of Elijah. And she and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. She sought the Lord first. She went and did. And what was the result? She was well fed. She was provided for. She was blessed. And I read that and I say, praise the Lord for this woman and her simple faith. Friends, these are the days of Elijah. I believe that. There's a famine for the word of God in our land today. And God has raised us up as a people, just like he raised up Elijah to call people back to the true God. Luke 19 tells us if we don't do it, the rocks will cry out. Friends, we've been given great light and special privileges. And through his word and his prophets, may we not hide the light, 
May we not cover the light. May we not be ashamed of the light. Rather, may we let the light of God's final message shine around the world. That by God's grace we may live up to it, believe it, proclaim it. For the night is coming when no man can work. This is the day. This is the time. This is the message. And in simple faith, I appeal to you. Believe the word of the Lord. Believe his prophets. Read the word of the Lord. Read his prophets. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then in simple faith, like the widow of Zarephath, go and do according to his word. There's going to be strange voices out there. Ironically, these strange voices are a fulfillment of prophecy as well. (laughs) So don't get bogged down in the strange voices. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. They'll fall in their appropriate place. And so it's my prayer that that will be your desire as it's mine today. To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. To put him before all else. Recognizing that that priority list, if I'm not careful, will just shift and adjust. And it won't even ask me if it's okay. It will just do that. But if I'm seeking after my father's heart, day after day after day, he'll keep putting those pieces back in the right place. And all these things will be added. It'll be okay. I believe in this act, the widow was simply saying, I'm all in. It's either going to work or it's not, but I'm all in. In simple faith, I'm just trusting that this is a man of God. I'm trusting that this is the word of the Lord. And Lord, help me, I pray that's the case because I'm all in. And that's the bedrock question he's asking us today. Are we all in? Dear Heavenly Father, that is the longing of our hearts this morning, that we would be wholly yours. And Lord, perhaps the Holy Spirit has brought something to our attention that we need to confess, that we need to give up, that the priority has been backwards. And so Lord, even in the quietness of this moment, we can do that. We can ask for your forgiveness and for your grace But then, Lord, help us to look up, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, to in simple faith trust your word and that of your prophets so that we may be able to live up to the light that you have entrusted to us today. And may we not keep that light to ourselves, but share it as you have intended Lord, we don't feel worthy, we don't feel able, we don't feel capable. But if we're wholly yours, we're at your disposal. Use us in whatever way you see fit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.